With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese is on the other end of the line. You spent uh, much of the weekend at Mid Ohio covering the IMSA races there, the WeatherTech Championship, as well as some of the other series under the IMSA banner. So we've got that to talk about, John, but also a big race, of course, with the Nürburgring 24 taking place uh, last weekend. We had GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS, two Sprint Cup races on Saturday. There were a lot of support races, GT Open, GT Euro- GT4 European Series. I mean, it was a busy weekend, plus tons of news, so it should be a jam-packed show why don't we begin with the Nürburgring 24, John, where we saw Rova BMW pick up the win in what was not really 24 hours of racing. Unfortunately, very bad weather overnight made a pretty simple decision, I think, for the race organizers. There seems to be a consensus they made the right choice going to the red flag, which lasted something like nine and a half hours overnight. Uh, big victory for BMW, nevertheless. It was kind of an up-and-down race from a lot of different perspectives, but I think the weather is one thing we'll be talking about uh, concerning this edition of the race for years to come. Yeah, it, it looked really torrential there, and our, our Dan Lloyd um, probably got wet quite a bit throughout the weekend there at, at, at the Nürburgring. It was kind of a contrast of, 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 of weather between Nürburgring and Mid-Ohio over the weekend, but um, nonetheless, uh, BMW put in a, a really impressive effort. Looks like they really capitalized on the drying conditions with their M6. And I don't think many people really expected BMW to play such a strong factor, but this race had a lot of unpredictabilities. Yeah, no question about it. I think coming into the weekend, based on what we saw in the practice and qualifying sessions, Mercedes appeared to have a very strong platform. And that, that factored in the first stanza of the race, if you will, before we hit the red flag. We saw a lot of Mercedes domination early on uh, in qualifying. You did have a little bit of, of, of a strange situation with the Ferrari starting on the front row, which was cool to see, but it faded very quickly, and, and it left us with Mercedes controlling the race. But uh, like I said, it was an up-and-down race where you had leaders crashing out a, a couple of times. Uh, Manuel Metzger as well as Raffaele Marchiello both had problems in the dark and in these treacherous conditions. That left Audi at the forefront when we resumed the race, and it looked like they were in a great position. But like you said, BMW did a great job capitalizing on the mixed conditions, going to the intermediate tires at the right time, and as a consequence, they found themselves in control of the race. It was still pretty close, though, coming down to the wire, something like 16 seconds after all of that racing separating first and second. Yeah, it was a good fight to the finish. You have to feel for, for the Audi teams, though, obviously. They seem to have had things in control for for a good portion of the race after um, some of the Mercedes um, had some accidents overnight. And, you know, this race is always extremely tricky. It, it, it takes a lot of driver commitment, takes a lot of team commitment. And and seeing some comments post-race from Nick Katzberg, he said, you know, his crew never put a wheel wrong, and that was really one of the keys to victory. Yeah, definitely true, especially this year, considering it was basically run and rain the entire time. Interesting, given those circumstances that Porsche never really factored in, you think of those conditions being prime for Porsche. And I go back to what we saw at Spa last year, a lot of rain there, and the Porsches were very strong, but that, for whatever reason, really never was the case at the Nürburgring this year. And and like we've said a couple of times, it left BMW in a great spot, their 20th overall win in this race, but first in 10 years. And, John, if I'm not mistaken, that would be the first in the GT3 era of the Nürburgring 24. Absolutely, Ryan. And it's it's hard to believe that even, you know, their Z4 didn't win this race at one point or another. And the M6 is kind of on the final few years of its existence before being replaced by the M4 in 2022. So, um, really, this was just this year and maybe next year were their final chances for this to happen. And, you know, you don't see many M6s competing around the world right now. And I know BMW put so much focus on this race. And I think that the kind of determination really helped to pay off as well. Yeah, it sure looked that way. Maybe having a tried and true package given the conditions was beneficial, but certainly one that they'll be proud of for years to come. Congratulations to the whole team 
picking up the big win at the Nordschleife over the weekend. To the event now that you covered, John, we had, uh, we'll start with the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship Racing at the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course. It's an event that has been really the playground of Accurate Team Penske since they came online. They scored the first win of this program there a couple of years ago and, and have continued to be strong every single year. And maybe they didn't have the dominance this year that we've seen in previous years, but it still was an Acura DPI that was in victory lane. Ricky Taylor and Elio Castroneves surviving what was a very bizarre race in a lot of respects. Yeah, getting their third win in a row. Um, I think that was really the only consistent part of the race was the was the rather controlling pace of the number seven car. Juan Pablo Montoya was leading at one point. I think there were some team orders to sort of let Ricky go because Montoya was on a different fuel strategy at that time. Um, then Montoya ended up spinning after making some really aggressive passes um, to get him get himself back up to third in the closing stages. That car ended up retiring with a few laps to go, which was a bit bizarre. But nonetheless, um, three for three for Acura at Mid-Ohio, um, the Acura team Penske operation. This is obviously the final year for that program. And um, to see them sort of lock out, you know, every year they've had the program they've won at this race, that sort of says a lot um, about the strength of this package, the strength of the team um, over the years, and, and especially just how it's so well suited to Mid-Ohio. And um, this this finish for, uh, for Ricky and Helio really puts them back in the championship hunt. I don't think anybody would have expected them to be fighting for the DPI championship after such a tough start to the season. But right now they're only five points back from uh, Renger van der Zanda and Ryan Briscoe, who finished third on Sunday. And um, Pipo Durrani, I think, is three points back in second place right now. So um, the championship is really, really heating up. And and there's three races to go. You know, obviously for DPI, three more races to go. Um, two of them are very long endurance races with Petit Lama and Motul Petit Lama and the um, Mobile 112 Hours of Sebring. So those are races where the Acura hasn't been technically the, the best. They haven't won those races before. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But in terms of Sunday's performance, it was really a, a picture-perfect run for the 7 crew. Yeah, definitely, and like you were talking about them being back in the championship hunt, I know that means a lot to both of them. Elio Castroneves, for all of his success for Team Penske, has never won a championship for the team, and, and Ricky Taylor has talked about wanting to be a part of the Team Penske legacy, and certainly he is with the race wins, but to uh, be able to contribute a championship, I think, would mean a great deal to him before... He moves on to the next stage in his career, which we'll talk more about a little bit later when we talk about the future of the Acura program. But stepping outside of DPI, let's get to GTLM. Obviously, we had the news coming into the weekend that Porsche was not going to be there, uh, given some positive COVID-19 tests coming out of Le Mans, which also impacted their efforts at the Nürburgring. So we only had the four cars, the two Corvettes, the two BMWs, and the two Corvettes continued to show their strength of this uh, new C8R package. A nice inter-team battle there for a while. It was by no means obvious which one was going to prevail, but the hot duo of Jordan Taylor and Antonio Garcia continue to show their strength with another race win. Yeah, it was their fourth of the year um, in, in the mid-engine Corvette. I think Cor- Corvettes had five wins so far this year, so they've won four out of the five with that package. And I think that says a lot right there. They've extended their lead over Ali Gavin and Tommy Milner. And it was a bit disappointing to see the, the GTLM field. And I sure hope this isn't a precursor to next year. Um, four cars just didn't really seem that exciting to me. Um, you know, it's sad because especially this race sort of brought back memories of the, the time when Corvette ran unopposed in GT1. And I remember they were sort of had, had this crazy pit stop squirmish and pit lane go, going out of the pits with both cars banging on each other. And, it, you know, that's what brought reminded. OK, that was some great on track action. But again, it was two cars in their own class. And it doesn't look like we'll have that next year. We'll have at least four cars with the two Corvettes and BMWs. But it was really clear that the Porsches were missing this weekend. And, um, yeah, it was a bit disappointing to see that battle. But um, we'll, we'll have to see what happens next year. I know IMSA is working a lot on trying to get some new manufacturers into the series or, or back to the class, um, potentially upgraded GT3 machinery as well. So um, you could check out a story on that on Sports Car 365 on Tuesday. But um, yeah, it was definitely Corvette's day. Um, ironically, actually, their first win at Mid-Ohio since 2012. Hmm. So 
Um, it's been some time, but then again, I think we all sort of knew who who was going to win this weekend. It just more more or less came down to which which of the the cars, the three or the four. Yeah, it's interesting on the surface of it. Maybe four cars versus six doesn't sound like a huge difference, but it did make a big difference watching the race, like you talked about. And I'm in agreement. I hope this is not what the future looks like, and we could talk more about what the future holds in our news portion of the program here shortly. But we should wrap up with the GTD race there at Mid-Ohio. Back-to-back wins now for... Aim Vassar Sullivan at Mid-Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this, yeah. one, this one was Jack Hawksworth and Aaron Tewitz teaming up. And again, this was one kind of like the DPI battle. It didn't necessarily feel like this was the direction it was headed for the whole race, but they were certainly able to capitalize on some misfortune for others and, and also had the pace to, to be there on merit, too, to some degree. Yeah, um, Aaron Thiel had started from pole, and it looked like they were going to be in a pretty controlling pace. However, um, a bit of a pit stop issue um, um, dropped the car back down to second. And then it actually, in an ironic twist of of fate, it was a pit stop strategy call by the team right before a yellow came out to pit um, Thielitz to change over to Hawksworth. That ended up being the key to the race. Um, They were able to get that stop done under green just moments before the yellow came out, where the rest of the GTD field then pitted under yellow and put the 14 back into the lead. And from there, um, Hawksworth basically cruised to to the finish. I wouldn't necessarily say cruise. There was some... uh, Pretty good pressure from Lawson Aschenbach and Patrick Long there in the end. Um, they, it was only within a few seconds, I think, at the at the finish. So um, really good runs for those second and third place runners. But you may be wondering what happened to Meyer Shank Racing. Mm-hmm. You know, they were dominant throughout the the last couple races. Um, you know, up up to par with the Lexus. Really good battles all year round. Um, showed some great pace in in qualifying as well. Well, Mario Farnbacher basically got taken out by um, Paul Holton um, in on the track on the front stretch. Um, the two cars made contact three times. It's a crazy onboard video you could see from the '86 car where Holton basically nerfs him three times on the side from side to side contact. Which I'm still left questioning. What the hell was he thinking? But um, IMSA, I guess, agreed on my logic as they mm-hmm. ended up giving him a uh, stop plus hold and 30 second for unsportsmanlike conduct. But they couldn't erase what happened to Mario. Mario had a, um, a cut down right front tire as a result of the contact. Um, dropped him well out of contention. Um, I think they fell back as low as eighth in the race. Um, the German got back up to up to fifth in, in the end, but lost a good chunk of their points lead um, um, going into the next race. So um, the championship's definitely tightened up now in GTD, but you have to feel for the MSR guys, especially as I think they had a car that would have been able to fight for the win, if not take the win, considering um, the strength of the Acura and how well the team's been doing lately. Yeah, but I guess those of us watching from the outside benefit because now the championship battle, like you said, really does heat up a lot of pressure on these teams as we head into the final few rounds of the season. You can find all of our coverage from uh, the Nürburgring as well as Mid-Ohio up on sportscar365.com. I should mention uh, we did have GT World Challenge Europe powered by AWS Sprint Cup races at Zandvoort, two of them on Saturday to allow, I think it was eight drivers, to make the trip from the Netherlands to the Nürburgring to compete in the 24 later on that day. It was pretty amazing, but... uh, to those races specifically, Kelvin Vanderlinda and Ryuchiro Tomita got their first win of the season for WRT in mixed conditions. That was in race one. Race two was pretty wild also because uh, Emil Frey Racing got the win. Giacomo Altoe and Albert Costa teaming up for the win there. But that was only after a penalty that was a drive through initially, but then got turned into a time penalty post-race for a pit lane infraction, demoted the WRT Audi of Dries Van Thor and Charles Vertz. So uh, some crazy stuff happening there at Zandvoort over the weekend. We had Michelin Pilot Challenge uh, at Mid-Ohio, Core Autosports sweeping in GS, while TCR saw Fast MD and Road Shagger Racing split the weekend. Uh, Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge, GT Open, GT4 European Series. Coverage of all of that either in Bespoke Stories or in our weekly racing roundup up at sportscar365.com. To the news of the week, though, now, John, and big news out of the WEC. 
Did you have any sense that this was coming, Gerard Nouveau, to leave the LMEM, basically the management company that runs the WEC? He's been the front man of that organization from its inception, effectively, and he's done after this year. So, so did you see it coming? Why did this decision happen, and why now? Yeah, it's really it's a real interesting development. Um, to answer your question, no, I didn't see it coming right now. Um, I think we've talked about this maybe on the show in recent years that there's always been rumors that him that he may be leaving at one point. Um, but it seemed recently that there might have been a bit of a turnaround in in relations with the FIA, in relations with the ACO, um, building the you know the building blocks with LMDH and 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 the. the Looking at what LMH is turning into with some positive momentum there, and so I, I really didn't, I really didn't expect it at right at this time. Um, but he, he had given hints before that you know he's not going to last forever in, in that position, and there's always you know a successor that would have to take over you know at some point, and we just didn't know when. And I, I don't know whether this is a positive development or or a negative development. It's really hard to say, um, Gerard has been a critical point in launching the WBC, no doubt. I remember when I first met him in, in Zuhai in, in, in the end of 2011 in the Intercontinental GT, Intercontinental Le Mans Cup, which was the precursor to the WEC. And um, he was so charismatic and, and, and really down to earth, um, really genuine in trying to build the championship into what it was. And he did an unbelievable job in, in, in attracting manufacturers, uh, being you know, in a real critical state right from the get-go in 2012 when Peugeot pulled out right at the last moment, left only Audi and and Toyota had to accelerate its program, Um, went through the era of the hybrids with, you know, the unbelievable battles between Audi, Porsche, and Toyota, Um, then all of a sudden had to deal with the whole Volkswagen dieselgate crisis and the the withdrawals of Audi and Porsche, and then then now more, you know, uh, reshape of the regulations, and then um, relations with the IMSA, and then now the COVID pandemic, you know, there, he's been through a hell of a lot in that championship, and that's just WEC. Um, Navo's team, you know, Navo and his team are, is in charge of the ELMS and the Michelin Le Mans Cup as well. So, um, nonetheless, this is some big news in the industry. Um, we don't have any word on his successor for, for next year. Um, there's been some talk, you know, going around that's thrilled. Mtesh Wallen, the, the boss of the Asian Le Mans series, could be in the frame. Also, Vincent Bumisnil, the, the current um, ACO sporting director, has been named as a potential uh, rumored uh, replacement. Also, I've heard some other um, names from the outside that could potentially be looking in. Um, we'll have to wait and see. But um, definitely, this gives the WEC a little bit of a different dynamic moving forward, especially what I've picked up on is its relation with relationship with IMSA because Gerard has been a massive proponent of IMSA, ACO, WEC, convergence relations with the regulations and, and the friendship there. And, um, I, I, you know, it's pretty safe to say that not everybody in the ACO are, are really warm and cozy with folks at IMSA. And, and Gerard was the huge exception to that. So, um, I'm really interested to see what happens, what develops with this in, in the months to come, and and really hope all the all the stuff that's been built up right now with LMDH and all of the convergence and whatnot doesn't get destroyed if we have a new guy in charge here in, in, in the WEC. Yeah, and that's kind of what leads to my next question. Where does this leave the WEC? This seems to be a very crucial period where we're transitioning from the LMP1 era and we're, we've gone through a couple of difficult years in that transition, but with a light at the end of the tunnel with LMH and eventually LMDH coming down the pipe, um, to have a change of leadership at this time seems less than ideal, at least from the outside. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Um, you know, Gerard said everything's in a good position. You know, the championship's looking up. Um, I, I agree with them, actually. I think WVC is in a better shape than I thought it would be. I think there's been some really s- sensible decisions made, especially for next year's calendar. Um, going down to six rounds, um, going back to a calendar year format, um, you know, having uh, some LMH interest now in, in, in cars being built and then the LMDH, you know, most likely delayed till 2023. So there, there, there is things in the pipeline, but it, you do have to worry about you know, will it be enough? Will somebody new coming in, you know, will that change the dynamic, the, the, the dynamic a bit? So um, I guess we'll just have to sort of wait and see. Um, it is 
it is interesting times all around and you can't fault Gerard at all for, for deciding to step away right now. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, he has a lot of family commitments he's had to make sacrifices for throughout the years. And similar to when Scott Atherton decided to retire um, from his post at IMSA, you know, um, I remember talking to Scott about it and, you know, he, he spent, okay, close to 20 years there. So that was ha- double of what Gerard has done, but nonetheless, a CEO job in a top motorsport series takes a massive toll on not just yourself physically, but mentally and, and relationships and, and everything. So we can't just expect people to be in these roles forever. And, and we have to sort of, you know, embrace it and, and, and really appreciate what they've done, you know, and I know the whole WEC, not everybody in the WEC paddock liked Gerard, but, I think what he did for the sport, what he's done for the sport has been remarkable, especially for bringing its sports car endurance racing back onto the global stage. Which leads into my next and final question on the topic. And some of this is yet to be written. It depends, I think, on how some of the things that are in motion right now pan out and how they look in five, ten years time. But at least based on what we know now, and you've had a lot of interactions with him, you've been covering the WEC from day one. What is the ultimate legacy of Gerard Neveu and, and what he's been able to accomplish in his time at the helm? Well, there's a lot of things. It's just starting the championship alone. I remember, you know, it was, it was in such muddied waters. Like I said, when Peugeot quit at the last minute, they didn't know what was going to happen. Um, Audi was the only committed LMP1 manufacturer, although Toyota was on its way. Porsche was on its way as well, but in a few years it was, there were so many question marks over what will happen. We had that crazy Sebring race where it was a combined outing with the ALMS. But going back to that, even it was Gerard's persistence, I think is what made super Sebring happen. I I think he was a huge component of bringing the WEC back to Sebring um, last year for the first time since that inaugural race and, and working with the uh, IMSA folks and working with everybody stateside to help, grow endurance racing together and and while there were times where IMSA and and WEC were perhaps considered as rivals as some gentlemen drivers and some teams flip-flopped between the championships you know you have to remember um, ESM going over to WEC because they were unhappy with IMSA and some of the drivers were doing the same and vice versa Uh, I I think in the end as, as we sit here right now I think we're more as one unified family of of endurance racing than, than where we were a couple of years ago. And a lot of that has been down to Gerard's continued persistence and effort to try to bring everybody together. And, um, you know, depending on what happens, you know, LMDH has arguably been more or less of a DPI 2.0 in the terms of the technical regulations of what IMSA had worked on for quite a while behind the scenes. And the, and the ACO sort of, you know, taking some of, taking it not over, but, you know, sort of jumping in at the last minute and, 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 and working with IMSA on the final pieces of these sets of regulation. But I think once we see that fully implemented on both sides of the pond, I, I think um, that's one of the probably lasting legacies that, that Gerard will have within his tenure in, in the LMEM. Really interesting times for sure, and we've got a couple of stories up about this particular bit of news at sportscar365.com if you would like some more, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more to say about it in the days and months to come. So taking the conversation back stateside then, we made oblique reference to this earlier, but uh, we did get some clarity as we anticipated on the future of the Acura program within the DPI ranks in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Two teams running single entries, Michael, uh, sorry, Meyershank Racing, no surprise there, but maybe catching people a little bit off guard, Wayne Taylor Racing. And I know he's had his hat in the ring a couple of times for, for a few different uh, possibilities, but interesting to see those two being the ones to carry the torch forward when the Team Penske part of this program comes to an end at the end of this year. Yeah, I, I guess it didn't come as a surprise to me because, like you said, we, we knew that he was working on a program and potentially with Acura. And, and I know things developed at a pretty rapid pace in the last few weeks to get that together. And um, it was great to finally see it announced be- alongside MSR and um, Acura sort of going back to the roots of, of having two different teams or multiple teams represent themselves in the in the, in the top class of prototype racing. Um, you look back in the, the days of the ALMS when they first entered LMP2 competition, they had 
um, three or four teams at times um, with Acura-powered cars, and then um, followed by the LMP1 program with DeFerrin and Highcroft um, with each one car. So um, it's a new approach for Acura. Um, I asked Ted Klaus, the, the president of Honda Performance Development, if the level of factory support is the same, and he indicated that it is compared to where they were at Penske. I think where it comes down to is that these both of these teams are can do the job in a much more cost-effective way. And that's one of the things I had heard multiple times from multiple people um, in the paddock about the Penske program. Sure, it's been successful. Sure, they've done a lot. They've won the championship. They just came off their third straight win and third win at Mid-Ohio. But um, it seems that the Penske success has come at a higher cost of than what HPD and Honda and Acura had ex- sort of expected at the beginning of the program. And um, Mike, in, in his telecom- in the teleconference announcing this program on Zoom um, last week, even made a reference that his NSX program has hit the budgets every single hit the budgets, you know, every single year without any issues. He hasn't gone over budget, and he's been extremely proud of that. And I think that's kind of a nod to what he anticipates happening with the DPI. And um, we also know Wayne Taylor is. Um, another top team that, that that can really deliver a lot with little budget. Um, you know, that's not to say they're not underfunded in any way, but um, from what we understand, they never really received a lot of financial support from GM, at least recently, um, with the Cadillac program. And I think this um, new relationship with Acura is going to help them step up to a, to new levels as well um, with, with this new uh this, with these two teams taking on the, the, the cars for next for the, at least the next two years. In a lot of sense, senses, both of these teams really make sense. What do you think about it? Uh, the the Meyer-Shank side, they've got a tie-in with Honda. And then for Wayne Taylor Racing, Wayne has a personal connection with Acura, and it sounds like there's some synergy there with Konica Minolta as well, which it sounded like Wayne was pretty excited about. The question that comes to mind for me, though, is who else was in the mix? Because we know these were two coveted programs. Do you have any sense for who else might have been under consideration? Sure. Shank was pretty much a done deal. I don't think there was any consideration outside of him initially uh, for at least one car. Um, you have to feel for Mike in the last few last five years because he had a relationship with Ford and then Ford went with Chip Ganassi Racing for the, the for the Ford GT program, which I guess you could understand. Okay, Shank hasn't proven himself to at that point of the of his program in 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 sports car racing to be maybe a full on level of Chip Ganassi. But then, meanwhile, Shank um, um, at that point went over to. Uh, uh, a, um, a Honda-powered um, LMP2 car had some success in the WeatherTech Championship, and that morphed into the NSX GT3 program, which they've run for the last, I think, four years now. This is the fourth season, and um, they've had an incredible amount of success there. Really proved their worth, and um, it, through that period, he was been trying and trying and trying to get a DPI, an accurate DPI, but um, Penske never basically allowed it to happen. Penske had an exclusivity clause that said they were the only operators of that car. And um, now this sort of opens it up where, you know, Schenck can finally get what they've been trying to do for year, for at least two or three years now to go back to prototype racing. Um, in terms of the other team or other teams that might have been in contention, I didn't hear about anybody in anybody specifically, um, but you'd have to think, you know, the normal suspects of uh, Andretti, Ray Hall, maybe a couple others that could have been in the mix that made inquiries for sure. Um, I know there was a, there was at least one other sports car team that initially made some inquiries, but um, we're not. I don't know how far that went. So um, I think this is a good mix. Um, both Mike and Wayne uh, have said a lot of positive things about each other and their plans to sort of um, lean on each other and learn from each other and sort of take this as one two-car team in a way instead of two single-car teams. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how it all develops. And I, I think the biggest thing is time. Um, they're not going to be getting their cars until after the season finale at uh, at Sebring in November, as um, HPD has a limited number of tubs, we believe that they'll be probably getting the same race chassis that um, Penske are running right now. Um, whether those are going to be used for racing next year or for testing or development or backup um, tubs, we don't know the actual cycle of the, of it just yet. But um, for sure. Uh, they're not going to get much testing under their belt before the Rolex 24. I think Mike indicated probably one test, one private test 
and straight into the roar. So um, exciting times for both teams, but also it's going to be a tight time frame for, for both to get up to speed with the cars. When do we expect to hear about drivers? I I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Um, it sounds like it's up to the teams to announce the drivers. Um, it'll be interesting to see if it's made before the end of the season or directly after. Um, what I have heard is that it's likely that Ricky Taylor and Dane Cameron will continue to drive Acura DPIs. Um, one would have to think that Ricky would return to his father's team there as a driver, and then um, Dane would be part of the Meyer Shank racing operation. Um, I've also heard that Renger Vanderzand is most likely going to be the co-driver in the 10 car alongside Ricky, although yet that has yet to be confirmed. So um, not too sure about the second driver on Shank just yet, but there's quite a few options floating around. Um, I've heard quite a few names of anybody from Lawrence Vanthor to Olivier Pla to, um, uh, to Montoya even. So who knows? Um, we'll have to wait and see. But nonetheless, it's, a, it's definitely exciting times for, for both teams. Um, we'll have to see when the drivers are announced, though. Yeah, no shortage of interested drivers for those seats, I'm sure. Final question on this topic, uh, a little bit about the future. We did hear some discussion about LMDH out of the Acura folks. What do we know about that for as far as the long-term future goes? And then the effect in the short term on the NSX program with the mainstay program from Meyer Shank Racing going away in favor of this DPI program. Yeah, let's start with the the GT Daytona NSX deal. Um, so Shank basically confirmed they will not be running cars next year. Their full focus is on the DPI. So that opens the door for more customer teams um, to enter GTD. Um, Honda, HPD, and, and Acura—they're offering some um, you know some good su- su- customer support, and and Shank has offered his own support um, for anything that a team would need help with. Um, he's just a phone call away. So um, right now we're not aware of any teams that are fully committed to the WeatherTech championship next year with the NSX. Um, we're not, I'm not quite sure where gradient racing stands on things right now. They've committed to the sprint cup races this year. Um, we'll have to see what happens there. If they can continue maybe to grow that program to a full season. Um, other teams, I think it's, that time of year where everybody's talking, everybody's discussing options for 21. So um, stay tuned for that. In terms of LMDH, I think that was the most exciting part of this um, Zoom conference they had on last Wednesday announcing this program. Um, Acura uh, HPD hasn't shied away from the fact that they intend to continue into the LMDH era. And basically, if everything's written the way they had expected it to be in terms of the regulations, uh, mind you, they just got the the final set of regulations last week. So um, all manufacturers around the world are quickly digesting, you know, what's in there and and how are things going to be governed. Um, But if, if it's what they had planned, what has been discussed in the working group meetings, then Acura is fully on board. And and Ted Klaus from HPD was quite enthusiastic about the prospect of hybrid. And he mentioned it multiple times. The hybrid era of IMSA is going to be extremely exciting for us. So um, that's really great to see. And and both teams are, are long-term contracts. We understand they're at least two-year deals. I would have to think they're probably a two-year deal with an option for a third. And that third year would be the first year of LMDH. So um, really exciting prospects there for both uh, MSR and WTR. And also, um, let's not forget about the 24 Hours of Le Mans. They've both, all, both teams have also indicated that they want to get back there to the French Endurance Classic. And HPD has confirmed that they will support that effort um, if they go LMDH, of course. And, but again, everything's pointing in that direction right now. Yeah, really exciting there. Uh, from the LMDH side to the LMH side of things. This has been a topic of conversation ever since this was the the potential convergence was announced back at Daytona. IMSA on whether or not hypercars might have a chance to play in their series. And it sounds like there is still interest there, but on the IMSA side of things, at least they want to make sure that they can have an even playing field for their full season entrance against any LMH entrance that might come in and, and cherry pick a couple events for themselves, uh, looking quite a ways into the future. Yeah, I think John Doonan's taking a very measured approach. He doesn't want to commit to anything just yet. They're open to the idea. Um, they're definitely looking at the possibility, but um, I, I think you, whether we'll see it or not remains unclear, and I think it's going to largely depend on what LMH teams would want to even compete in IMSA. We know that Toyota has signaled some 
hope that they could do Daytona and Petit Le Mans perhaps in the future. Um, Peugeot has stated, no, there's no interest to return stateside at all. And then that would basically leave Glickenhaus and Baikalis. We're not too sure on either of those efforts for their U.S. plans. So um, I think we'll have to wait and see. IMSA's keeping the books open and sort of wanting to see the cars on track first before um, they commit to anything regulation-wise or, or another. And and next year's Super Sebring event, if it includes the WEC as well, I think that'll be a good barometer to sort of see how the car's performance levels are, even without LMDH around, but you can sort of give a good comparison, see how they interact um, with other classes and, and, and whatnot. Okay. From the prototype discussion to the future of GT racing, we mentioned the BMW program continuing on into 2021. Some interesting comments, though, in our story about BMW's plans and their hope, at least, that some other manufacturers might be represented on the GTLM grid as soon as next year beyond the two BMWs and the two Corvettes. Yeah, it's a quite an interesting development, and I also had a talk with John Doonan about this, and there's a story on Sports Car 365 It's being published Tuesday, so as we're publishing this podcast, that sort of expands on this a little bit. Um, it's The idea here is that IMSA may not be left with just four cars for GTLM next year. Um, Doonan has confirmed that um, he, he's had talks with both Aston Martin and Ferrari about potential semi-works programs for GTLM and also has ruled has not ruled out upgraded GT3 cars if there was a manufacturer or a team that came to them with a compelling argument or compelling case to show you know wanting to have an all pro lineup wanting to run in the GTLM class and the other existing GTLM manufacturers in the class all agree then we could potentially see that um, the last time that's happened was with BMW um, when they had the M6 uh, uh, compete in the class, kind of on an IMSA waiver, more or less. It was based on the GT3. They made some changes for GTLM to make it similar to GTE spec, but it wasn't a full-blown GTE car. So um, that's a real interesting development, too. Um, Dunan basically said what what they would consider a success is if they have six cars next year. Um, they basically just want to replace the two Porsches. If they have more, that'll be great. But they, he sees GTE as sort of a short-term Outlook. Um, he's really pushing for a global GT convergence platform, much like LMDH, and um, we'll have to wait and see how that develops. But I have a sneaky suspicion we'll be seeing something like that by 22. Um, next year is kind of going to be a transition year for for GT machinery, and um, I, I think that if we can get a couple more cars in the GTLM class, that would be great. The other manufacturer I did speak to was Porsche. Um, Dr. Daniel Armbruster, the head of uh, Porsche Motorsport North America, he um, confirmed that there's no plans to run any customer or, or, or offer any customers the opportunity of running a Porsche um, 911 RSR in the GTLM class just because of the costs involved of supporting such a program, um, especially if it's just one car. Um, they don't have the resources to really dedicate to that. They, they're they very firm on customer support in North America being GT3, GT4, and the single make series. Okay, really fascinating. Can't wait to see where this is headed, that's for sure. Uh, one thing we do know is coming to IMSA next year is the LMP3 class, and several people have been talking about the expectation of a lot of entries, perhaps, coming into the WeatherTech Championship with LMP3, and that has caused the series, presumably, to proactively state, hey, if if we get too many of these entries, we will put in a cap to the LMP3, similar to what we saw when LMPC came in. Was that in the ALMS or was that in the combined series? That was an ALMS. I don't think there was. I don't think there was one in, in the combined series, if I could remember correctly. All right. So, what do we make of this possibility? A of this kind of interest and the potential to have to cap the number of entries. How would they go about doing such a thing? I, I think. IMSA's taking a very serious approach to this because when LMP3 was announced in the WeatherTech Championship, there were quite a few concerned teams, drivers, competitors about maybe the quality of entrance sort of going downhill in the class. You know, no disrespect to some of the bronze rated drivers, but we don't, they didn't, they're fearing that, you know, some more inexperienced drivers or teams could end up causing more cautions, more incidents, more hiccups in these races. And 
Um, Dunan seems very cognizant of that, and he indicated that they're looking for high-quality teams. They're looking for experienced teams from the top level. Somebody like Riley Motorsports, which has already announced an LMP3 effort for Jim Cox and Dylan Murray, I think that's a picture-perfect example of, of what I think IMSA is going after right now for LMP3 is to have a, a seasoned team with WeatherTech experience that with drivers that have won endurance races in the Michelin Pilot Challenge that are very well experienced and and, and, and a great driver pairing there stepping up to the WeatherTech Championship with the LMP3. So um, he, I think that's where IMS is sort of going after. We don't know the number of entries they're going to be capping it to, um, but, but John did make, make it sound like there is a plan to cap it. He just doesn't know how many. Um, just yet. My guess would be probably between six and eight full season entries. Um, one would guess they would probably allow additional entries for maybe some of the endurance races. Um, as we know, there have been some teams already that have signaled interest in running the Rolex 24, including Molnar Motorsport and, and Euro International. Um, um, some European teams potentially coming over with LMP3 machinery. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. They're still sort of trying to figure out the driver rating possibility for the class as well. There's two different options being floated around. So um, there's a busy time for IMSA as they're sort of coming to finalize the, the sporting regs for the LMP3 class next year. And through it all, John Doonan has said that they they remain committed to LMP2 and have some hope to see four or five cars on a full-time basis next year. Yeah, he really um, cited the the cost of the you know the COVID crisis as sort of being the reason why we were not seeing as many LMP2s on the grid this year. And I, I agree with him fully. You look at um, Dragon Speed, which had planned a full season. Um, there was a ripple effect from COVID and Lama of, of them getting their second entry, and that's why they've um, pulled out. Starworks was another perfect example. John Ferrano had been committed more or less to the full season. Um, then his company, you know, has to, he has to focus more on his business aspects in Canada and the travel challenges coming from there. That's uh, we lost an entry there, and then now Performance Tech has been on a reduced program as well because of their Canadian driver as well, Cameron Castles. So. Um, there's absolutely no hiding behind COVID in that, in, that, in that statement. I think John is spot on. And if we can get some new blood into LMP2, um, I, I think it will definitely be a, a good category next year. Um, John reiterated that LMP2 is extremely important to IMSA, especially from the LMDH side of things, as that's where the constructors are born in. You know, the, the, the LMDH are LMP2 modified cars and the new generation LMP2 cars for that matter. So I think it's very important for IMSA to keep the LMP2 class in the WeatherTech Championship, especially coming to 23 when the new gen LMP2 cars debut. So clearly a busy week in the news in sports car racing. Should also mention a couple of other stories. You can find more about these on the website. We do know now that the grandfathered LMP1s in Next year's WEC are set to be at the same performance level as LMH. Uh, We've got more on the latest from the Mission H24 program's plans to race a hydrogen-powered car as soon as next season. And also Porsche announcing that it will be launching a Carrera Cup North America for 2021. Some implications there for the uh, already existing challenge series that they have both in the U.S. and Canada. So more on those stories and more at sportscar365.com. Time now to get to some listener questions. And before we get to the questions, actually, we did get some uh, constructive feedback, I guess you could say, from last week's show. A listener whose characters, I guess, in the username, I think the Korean characters come out to something like Lulu. Sorry if I mispronounced that, and actually that's kind of in keeping with what we're about to discuss here. Uh, Pointed out that perhaps we're not pronouncing the French automaker Peugeot quite correctly, uh, because in the past, being an American and not knowing how to speak French very well, I certainly was saying it uh, closer to Peugeot. And so uh, when we got that comment, I reached out and said, hey, well, any help you could provide to a non-French speaker in the pronunciation would be helpful. And the suggestion I got back was something along the lines of Peugeot, I believe, and I certainly have heard that in the past, primarily from my English colleagues, and 
that doesn't quite gel with what I was able to find on the internet uh, with French speakers saying it. Also, my wife speaks French quite well, and I sought out a couple other French speakers, and evidently it's more of a Peugeot as opposed to Peugeot. Um, the the Peugeot thing, like we said, I have heard before, and I think it's maybe a difference between a English speaker from the UK saying it versus an English speaker from America, much like you might hear them say uh, Nissan instead of Nissan, or they might say Acura, whereas we say Acura in the States. Uh, so I think that might be the, the discrepancy there. Nevertheless, I'll do my best to try and do it a little bit better. Uh, I think the Peugeot, or something along those lines, is a little bit closer to accurate. Uh, bear with me, though. Not a French speaker. Took Spanish in school, and French pronunciation has always been a bit difficult for me, but we will endeavor to do better. And as we've said in the past, if you have constructive criticism for us, we certainly welcome it. So uh, appreciate you writing in, Lulu, and thank you very much for alerting me to the fact that maybe we haven't been doing that quite as well as we could have over the years. And hopefully my explanation of how I'm going to pronounce it moving forward makes some sense just from, from what I can tell, that the Peugeot seems to be the best way, most accurate way, and the best that I can do it with my rather annoying American accent. So, there you have it. Do have some questions that came in in the comment section from last week's podcast. The first one comes from Goncolosance, I think, 2084, who says he's planning a trip to Le Mans on the centenary, but doesn't want to see something like this year or 2018 where the race is predetermined at the front and the other classes aren't very entertaining. He says, do you see 2023 going the way of 2011 action-wise? Cheers and keep it up. Us sports car fans appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. John, what do you see in your crystal ball? How does 2023 look to you? Well, if all goes to plan, 2023 could be a mega year at Le Mans because that would be presumably the first chance to see LMDH compete in the 24 hours along with LMH cars, which will be in their third appearance um, at, at Le Sarth. So um, I, I think up front there's a possibility where we could have multiple, you know, five, six manufacturers battling it out. And, and it would be unbelievable, you know, especially with some uh, uh, U.S. teams and manufacturers coming over, like what we talked about with Acura, with that distinct possibility. Um, if Acura would, would come over, obviously, it would be under the Honda banner in Europe. Um, that's another caveat to all of this. But mm-hmm. um, nonetheless, there's other manufacturers in the mix as well that are looking for U.S. programs and possibly adding on the 24 hours of Lama components. So I would say um, book your plans if you can. Things can change in a, in a, in a heartbeat in this new world. But um, I think 23 should look pretty good, especially from the, the, the top prototype class. Okay, next question comes from Nick, who says, As a Ferrari fan, I wonder whether the change of the brake pads that were performed in the morning, this goes back to the 24 hours of Le Mans, I believe, were done just for precautionary reasons or because the car couldn't make it to the end without doing that. He says, I think it's a very important question because in the end, it was a turning point of the race between Ferrari and Aston. Unfortunately, on Eurosport, they didn't talk too much about it. And uh, Nick doesn't remember whether Ferrari changed the brakes last year. He says he did does recall that Porsche had some issues with the brakes in 2019. So basically, is it a routine intervention for the GTE or was it inevitable? Thank you uh, for answering the question. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I can't really answer that. I don't know off the top of my head. I wasn't covering GTE as closely as our um, Dan Lloyd, who was on site, and Dan right now is on his way back from the Nurburgring 24 after what's been a really hectic couple weeks for him. So um, we'll try to maybe get this answered for you next week. Um, sorry about that. Yeah, we'll look into it. I do think one of our commenters put in a, an answer that seemed pretty sensible to me, but yeah, we'll check with Dan and, and see how that checks out. Thank you both for writing in. If you have questions for us on a future show, you can do what they did and leave a comment in the comment section or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. Finally, John, let's look ahead to this weekend, and for the first time since February, the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli fires up. This was supposed to be the second-to-last race of the season. Instead, it is the second, the Indianapolis 8-hour, the debut of this event. 23 cars on the most recent entry list. We had some information coming out from the series this morning. That's Monday morning as we're recording this. And uh, I guess here we go. We're going to see how this goes. I think there were already question marks even before COVID 
on how this event would play out. Those questions probably aren't going to be answered this year because it's such a strange year, but I think there are a lot of people looking forward to seeing if this can stick, if they can find an IGTC round that works in North America because the previous editions at Laguna Seca never quite caught on. Yeah, and this one very well could be, although I don't think we should judge it by this year only, um, especially, like you said, because of COVID. Um, 23 cars on the list, I think it's three more than what had been at Laguna Seca last year. So that's an improvement. But more importantly, it's by far and large, the majority of the entries are U.S. teams. And what we saw at Laguna last year, were the majority were flying teams from Europe. So um, this is mostly due to the COVID situation. It's just really difficult to get around the world right now. And um, manufacturers have decreased efforts, frankly. You know, Mercedes-AMG doesn't have a pro car. There's only one Audi in the field. Um, Porsche only has one entry in the field, and that's in the Silver Cup. Um, no factory drivers that are listed. So um, it's a bit sad because this is not the typical IGTC race we would sort of become expected to the scene, but I think uh, it'll be an interesting one to see for sure because we have GT World Challenge America built into this race, and the first three hours of that race will be points paying for the season finale um, for that championship for the National Series that t- typically runs 90, two 90-minute races. Instead, it'll be one three-hour race for them. But the good news is that the majority of those cars are going to go on to compete the rest of the race. I think it's only the the second Racer's Edge Acura right now that's listed to only do the first three hours. So um, we're going to be seeing some additional drivers in those cars. Um, you got guys like Ben Keating um, in, the Mer- in one of the DXDT Mercedes. You have a a rising open wheel star and, and Robert McGinnis um, joining Trent Hinman and Shelby Blackstock in the Racers Edge, Racers Edge Acura. So a lot of little cool things going on. And then also the team Hardpoint Audi that's um, joining forces with WRT with, with factory drivers Marcus Winkelhock and Merker Bottolotti with um, Spencer Pompelli, who's a Hardpoint regular. Um, there's a lot of different elements to look at this weekend. And while it's not the grid in terms of the sheer number of cars and um, that many would have maybe expected. I think a lot of that is down to the COVID situation, and it's sort of given the time, given the chance to shine the light on the U.S. teams, and um, I'm excited to see how it happens. Based on conversations I've had with people in the know, it sounds like there is a second year for this event. Uh, it's maybe not totally a done deal just yet, but it sounds like they're they're getting awfully close to being able to say that with some degree of certainty, and that's good. I think you need to give it a couple of years to see if it can stick, especially because this year is such an anomaly in so many ways. And and like you said, I think there are driver lineups that are quite interesting. Some of the names you mentioned, you can throw in former Indy 500 pole sitter Ryan Briscoe driving a vital speed Ferrari. I mean, who would have who would have said that was going to happen before this year got started? So a few little things to, to be excited about and Hopefully it's a fun one. Plus, you've got the rest of the SRO America Series, TC America, both Sprint and Sprint X for Pirelli GT4 America. All will be wrapping up their seasons. And you throw in a couple of IndyCar races into the mix, too. Plus, I think the the new Skip Barber Series, too. So it should be a busy week of racing. I believe track activity begins on Thursday. Maybe there's something on Wednesday. Practice for GT4 America and TC America on Wednesday already, so it's going to be a long week. It is, it is. Looking forward to getting out to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway a little bit later this weekend. Uh, We'll have a lot of coverage for you, of course, at sportscar365.com. Thank you for tuning into the podcast here this week. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes if you have the time to help us out with that. And we look forward to talking with you about the Indianapolis 8-Hour, plus everything else that happens in the world of sports car racing between now and the next episode when we speak to you next week with our next edition of Double Stats. We'll be right back.